If you haven't yet, go subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, whatever you use to listen. Go subscribe. And go follow us on Instagram at livinthedream506. That's livin, L-I-V-I-N, the dream dot, nope, no dot, 506. And if you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash livinthedream506. My guest today is the sampler and bass player for the band Lotus. If it sounds like I'm rambling or being a bit of a fanboy, well, I totally am. I'm a huge Lotus fan. I've been for a long time, somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 years probably. It's crazy. Crazy. Um, anyway, this episode was a lot of fun and such a pleasure. So without further ado, please give it up for the one, the only, Jesse Miller. So thanks for doing this. Yeah. So right now, Lotus is off for a couple of weeks. What are you doing in your free time? Um, well, I, I just finished a session with um, Luke, who um, is the keyboardist and guitarist in the band and also my twin brother. Right. And we, we do all the writing for the band. So we just did a session kind of finishing up a, a bunch of uh, big bad demos that we we're working on for the band. So um, what or sort of the the uh, demo stage of the next Lotus album. So uh, working on that, and um, I always have a bunch of projects in the uh, in the pipeline. I have another band called Octave Cat that um, I'm always writing for, and I also do a solo project called Beardo Bees, as well as production stuff for other people so anytime i get a little bit of break from lotus i'm putting time into one of those many projects yeah so it's non-stop eh yeah i mean i always i always try to stay busy to a certain degree i mean sometimes it feels like too much but then anytime i have a day where i don't know exactly what i should be working on next i almost start to freak out so <laughs> i always like i always like to have uh, something ready to ready to go to keep you sane yeah <laughs> like what else would you produce um i wouldn't say a lot of things but um um yeah just since i'm pretty busy with lotus but i i do mixing work for lotus and octave cat bands who are like either friends of mine or or people that um, ask me for it i'm doing that stuff like just kind of helping to structure songs and if I'm working on mixes, you know, helping them complete that process and just kind of move recorded projects along. So Octave Cat and Beard of Beasts, like, do you have much time for those? Is it basically just when Lotus is kind of taking a break? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I would say for priority or the way it kind of breaks down, it's probably 75% Lotus, maybe 15% Octave Cat, and then um, whatever's left split between <laughs> Beard OBs and other things that I'm working on. Yeah. So just before we really get into things, I just want to reminisce for a second. Um, the first time I ever saw Lotus was back in 2007 and you guys were headlining the Evolve Music Festival in Anaganish, Nova Scotia. Oh, uh, yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, man. That was insane. Like, that was what, like right when I was kind of getting into the jam scene, and you guys, like, I, I knew your music from albums and stuff, but the albums sort of don't really justify a jam band and the live presence. So... Like you guys came out and opened with Jump Off and you played Wax and Daft Punk around the world cover. And I just remember that as being like kind of like a turning point in my musical taste. It was just really incredible to see. And like the weather was crazy. The wind was blowing the lights all around. It was an insane <laughs> night. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Um, was, I don't specifically remember the set, but I remember going out there. I mean, it, it seems so far out there, but it was just uh, some beautiful country. Oh, I know. It's the drive just never ends, and then you finally get there, and it's just like a haven. <laughs> yeah, but that's awesome. Uh, glad to uh, take you to a new musical place. <laughs> yeah, it was it was perfect, really. And so, and then after that, I saw you guys at Nativa in Maine. I think that was 2010. You guys played Lead Pipe, and I just remember everybody I was there with just thinking that was just mind-blowing. Yeah, so and most recently I saw you guys at Holidays in 2017 and then at Red Rocks opening for Humphreys McGee. Just wanted to throw all that down and just say that it's it's an honor to have you on the podcast, man. Oh, thank you very much. So last week you guys played at Disc Jam and Barber, the guitar player for Disco Biscuits, did he sit in for that entire set? Yeah, it was so John was uh replacing uh Mike Rempel for for that set and then we actually had a couple other guests. Um, some of the guys, from, I don't know if you're familiar with the band Kung Fu. They're yeah. like a, okay, yeah, let's so like a funky, um, proggy funk band. Um, a, a number of members from that band sat in throughout the set as well. Um, Adrian, their drummer, played percussion 
on one song, Rob played sax on Middle Road, and then Tim um, replaced John for um, Cold Facts. Oh, wow. So just a plethora of cameos for that whole set. Yeah, I mean, for the most part, it was it was us plus John. But uh, yeah, I got, got a few of the Kung Fu guys in, and that, and that was fun to have them up. Yeah. So it was, how was that experience, having them all play, especially like Barber for the entire set? Um, you know, it, in a lot of ways, it, it, it felt like not that much different than a Lotus set since, you know, it was four fifths of us and we were playing Lotus songs. Um, but you know, just, uh, just getting, I, I guess the thing that was most revealing to me was I, I always think of our songs as fairly simple. Um, but then I, when we were when we were rehearsing these with John, I, I kind of realized like, okay, they're they're not really as simple as they would as you might think. There's you know multiple melodies and variations and phrase extensions, meter changes, all these things kind of add up to a, a lot to remember for you know learning two hours of another group's music for one show. Yeah, absolutely. That that was a really exciting sit-in for a lot of people, like on the scene. That got a lot of a lot of hype. Do you guys have any like other dream sit-ins or collaborations? Um, you know, one that I think would be really cool would be John Medeski Sometime, I mean, oh, he's yeah. he's just, I mean, yeah, indescribable musician and amazing improviser. So I, I think it would be interesting to hear him in the context of um, something like Lotus that's, um, you know, draws on some of those jazz ideas, but more in this, this you know, extended sort of kraut rock and, and dance thing. I, I'd be interested to hear what he would do in that context. Yeah, his his jazz stylings I think would complement Lotus just almost perfectly, really. Yeah, that uh, that's one that I think would be amazing. You know, it, I I do think it is a little challenging sometimes, and why I would say we probably have a lot less guests than other jam bands is, you know, we have five people and we're we're triggering samples sometimes, and it it sometimes it seems like so much sound like we have to even make an effort on our end to kind of strip things back and not make it, um, you know, too, too much to the point where it can, um, you know, those adding something else works against the whole instead of adding to it. So, um, yeah, we, we usually try to be pretty judicious with when we have, um, other people join us. Yeah. You, you talk a lot about your sort of respect for minimalism and things like that. And I think that's kind of what you're addressing right there. Yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't describe Lotus as a minimalist um, act by any means, but that is an aesthetic that I'm drawn to. And, you know, we, we try to take into account when we're, when we're composing and putting together uh, music. Yeah, absolutely. Before you guys became like a headliner coming up in the scene, did you have any, any moments that were just like a dream for you guys, like maybe playing with different bands that you idolized or like shared the stage with? You know, it's funny. We, we almost never did the uh, opening thing. Even early on, we just played small shows um, as a headliner and kind of worked our way up that way. Um, I, I think mostly because we wanted to stretch out 
um, but also we're kind of a terrible opening band as far as production because <laughs> there's five of us and we take up a lot of channels and a lot of space. So um, right. we only did that a few times, but um, I don't know if you think like a few festivals early on, um, just getting uh, some of these spots. Like I, I remember, I forget what year it was, but one of these all goods we were playing, they, they would do, two stages next to each other, you know, one's a big stage and one's a smaller stage where they would have like 45 minute sets. But one year it was just this massive crowd, like 25, 30,000 people or something. And, and we had this slot, I think it was between like Keller Williams and Bob Weir. And we just had these 45 <laughs> minutes, but we just had a captive audience and we were playing this, you know, high energy set. And I thought that that kind of was like a, a marker of like, I think there was a lot of people there who hadn't heard the band before and, and it just kind of caught, caught the lightning. And, um, I think we turned on a lot of fans at that set. Yeah. That's a, that's a pretty big opportunity and like a headliners change over the stage and you can kind of really steal an audience. Yeah. And there's another one, the first Rothbury, um, in uh, Michigan, what, you know, now has evolved into electric forest, but, you know, originally it was, it had a lot more bands and wasn't such a like EDM bass festival. Yeah. Um, we had a, a really killer late night slot and that, that festival just, no one knew what it was since it was first year and the uh, same kind of thing, just had a, like a really big crowd and the set was just going off. So I think that was another one that they kind of like jumpstarted the band and kind of elevated us to the next level. Yeah. Before that, like did you ever play in any bands before lotus um just a, a little bit in in high school i had a ska band with some of my friends um like most people my age who grew up in the <laughs> suburbs um and then i i had one year of college the um uh, before i joined up with the guys where i was just kind of the resident bass player of this really small college so i would play with the bluegrass band like a jazz band just like a psych band just i was just you know young right. and had time and wanted to play with everybody so yeah. um, but then yeah we started lotus when we were in college so really it's been my primary band for i mean about 20 years now oh wow what was the name of the ska band uh put that down chris pretty good not not a ska pun but as far as ska band names go like right right in that uh in that zone <laughs> so um after high school you said you went into college and started lotus now you studied you were studying music right yeah so what was the what was the plan if being in a band wasn't wasn't going to take off like study music what was the job plan um i didn't have one um no i just i you know i guess i always was more of a theory it's like if if you got a college degree and you didn't you didn't know what you uh if you didn't have something going on immediately after that or going into it like what you really wanted to specialize in would be like happen after that in grad school so right. i kind of figured just any kind of any kind of college degree would be would be fine and what i wanted to do at the time was study music composition and read so uh, i was doing uh, music and with a minor in philosophy so kind of i'm uh, doing both of those things 
philosophy. Yeah. So that's interesting. What, what draws you to philosophy? Um, I guess just the, like, I, um, the first school I went to was called St. John's. I only went there a year, but I was doing, or everybody did. I, it was a great books program. So basically, you know, the dead white man canon of Western culture and just reading all original sources. And I wanted to continue doing, reading that material, even though I wasn't going to that school anymore. So philosophy kind of seemed like the best way to uh, do as much of that reading as possible. Yeah. So if, if the music industry wasn't a thing, like if it didn't take off, what would you, like, what could you see yourself doing for a living? I mean, the kind of some of the stuff I do when I'm not doing Lotus, like engineering, uh, mixing, um, production kind of stuff still, I, I do think like I would want to be doing something in music, but if you're saying something completely outside of that, then, um, yeah, I don't know. I, maybe maybe some other uh some other art that's maybe like a visual art or or film something like that those those to me are um kind of tied in and if we're going a little further out i i'm really into cooking i don't know if that would be like a career because i just like to do it for fun but um (laughs) you know maybe if i hadn't gotten into music and art that'd be something i would pursue more of what's your what's your specialty dish uh i don't know if i have like one specialty but i i cook all vegetarian food so uh just really anything with vegetables and trying to um, bring those flavors to the forefront nice if you were in film what what kind of what kind of genre would you be drawn to um i guess i would do things that are slightly less narrative based it's almost like a, like a Jarmusch or Lynch kind of thing where it's more about a, a vibe than, uh, than a narrative. Interesting. <laughs> Any ideas? Have you ever written anything? Uh, no, I, I, I would like to do something like that sometime, but right now my, uh, my time is very much consumed with all the music projects I have going on. Yeah, absolutely. Was music always like a big part of your life growing up? Um, yeah, my my parents got got me into lessons early on, and it was in our in our church. It was singing four part harmony, and you know, um, people playing not like praise band stuff. Um, yeah, more more the singing, but that was definitely an important part of the the church service growing up. So. Um, my parents weren't big musicians. They, you know, they only had, they had a record player and, you know, a few of their college records, but, um, I don't know. I, I definitely was turned on to music early and, and always interested in it. Yeah. So you were raised in a religious setting? Um, yeah, my dad was a pastor at a Mennonite church. Did that play a big part in your life? Like, was that something that really developed you or like inspired you in any way um i guess more just in the sense of like a big thing for in uh, for mennonites is community so i think maybe that aspect but um otherwise yeah i i don't know i you know my dad being a pastor came at um 
some things from slightly more like academic side. So uh, maybe some of that rubbed off on me of being, you know, interested in interested in reading and learning history and delving into that side of things. Was that was music an escape in any way, or was like that lifestyle like? Did you welcome that sort of lifestyle? Um, yeah, I mean, I I don't think music was like an escape. I think it was like, it was part of it. I mean, like, you know, my, my parents weren't strict, so I, you know, would be doing church stuff, but then on like going out to see punk rock shows or, you know, doing whatever, whatever kind of stuff we did when, when, uh, we were in high school. So, um, yeah, I think they were both happening at the same time. Cool. So they were supportive with the music. Yeah, definitely. That's pretty cool. That's interesting too to 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 know that you had a a father who was a pastor growing up, especially with like the the music scene in which you play. You know what I mean? Like the jam scene seems so far from any sort of religious setting. But I do think there's, sense. I think there's a concert or a festival or something fills this role of like a. Um, you know, a gathering of like ritual, a lot of things that in were maybe filled by, or those roles were filled by the church and earlier on when, when those things didn't exist. So I, I think that's, that's a big part of it for people. They, they, most people wouldn't go to a festival if they were the only person attending a lot of, a lot of what's, fun about it is that everybody's in it together and they're experiencing it at the same time. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like the ritual sort of thing and like the community and sort of looking for that spiritual experience together. Yeah. So for a pretty much entirely instrumental band, other than like samples and things like that, what would you say the most important part of songwriting is like, how does writing a song without lyrics change the approach or, or does it? I would say first thing, um, when me and Luke are writing, at least for Lotus, there's the very first two things we look for are a good groove. So something that's going to catch people on, on the physical side, like get them, get them wrapped up that way. And then a, a really strong melody or hook. So if we're putting down ideas, the very first critique we're going to say is like, oh, this, like that melody needs to be stronger. Something needs to be hookier or like this groove needs to be improved. So that's the way you really catch people. It's like the, on the body side for the beat and what's happening in between the instruments, the rhythms, and then, um, yeah, more on the, the mind side or this thing with the, with the melodies and hooks. We, we want that, that thing that like, like after the show ends, you're just singing that melody back and it's just in your mind immediately and it feels, uh, feels natural. And then after that, when it's all the things that are supporting that, like the harmony, the arrangements, all those things uh, are very important in writing. And then when we're recording, it's, you know, how, it, how is everything mixed together? It's, uh, you know, what are we emphasizing more? But yeah, at the really beginning are those two things the uh uh, rhythm and the melody yeah so in the in the jam scene 
there's a bit of a drug culture. I, I'm, I've heard, I don't know if you're aware, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, allegedly, but does that ever play a part in songwriting? Just knowing that that is the mindset of the crowd or does that ever, has the band ever maybe indulged to spark creativity perhaps? Um, no, I don't, I don't think it's, I personally don't find that very helpful for writing. I, I think if you craft something that's that's really good, then you can build off of it to make these more extended things that work live. But um, you know, I, I've seen plenty of people do do shows where they're just coming in with no compositions and and just improvising. And while it can be cool to see people's chops, and I think for crowds sometimes it's impressive to hear musicians who are listening and making changes based on the other people and it seems almost magical that people are coming up with it on the spot but for me it loses all structure when when it's not tied into something so um to me it's like you start with something that's that's really good and then that can be stretched out but if you start with nothing what are you what are you pulling out of that what are you coming back to what anchors the whole thing um so I, I think to have like a really well-crafted song is is about getting ideas, but then stripping it down to its essence and taking away anything that's not helping to build up those um, those primary kernel ideas. So, and I don't really think um, drugs necessarily open open you up to that kind of crafting. But maybe just like in a mindset, it's kind of like that thing, like you take a psychedelic one time and if you have a good experience, it might just kind of like open you up and you maybe don't need to do it again for like years. You kind of have that, that, that mindset that you can tap into. Yeah. The reference point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've noticed you guys seem to have quite a bit of a following like overseas in different countries like Japan for example you hear a lot about as a lotus staple and I think probably being an instrumental band your music like easily transcends language barriers would you say um yeah you would think that but I do think there are um historical things that have made it tough for a band like us to break out in Europe I mean it seems like it would be a no-brainer since electronic music is big over there but Um, you know, there's, there's really, there's just so little history of, you know, quote unquote jam bands or improvising bands, uh, building up crowds in, in Europe that not too many people know about it. It's, it's funny with, um, Octave Cat, we end up actually selling more Octave Cat records into Europe just because I think the associations with jazz groups um so right. people will i i always like if someone buys a record from germany or something i always ask like how they found the band and it's inevitably something like it was listed next to snarky puppy on on some playlist or something like that but <laughs> with lotus and um you know other jam bands we're we kind of have this insular thing in the states and and i think that's you get you get big over here and build up um, this sort of production surrounding it. It becomes much tougher to bring that to Europe where you would kind of have to start at the beginning and, and um, you know, build it up. 
the the whole idea of like going to multiple shows and having a band that's always changing set lists. Like whenever we've had bands from Europe play with us, that's the first thing they always comment on. And they say like, no one ever does this. It's like completely foreign to uh, how anyone does anything in Europe. So they, they usually just craft a set list and then tour that specific set list for the entire tour. Uh, yeah. Just like, you know, that's how most people are doing it in the States too, you know, with the exception of, of jam bands, but, or just that whole idea of like, I'm going to go see this band five times a row, or you know, <laughs> I'm going to go see this band a hundred times. Like that, right. that concept is, is definitely, definitely seems to be different. Yeah. It does seem to be more of a North American feel. Mm-hmm. So having said that, I had a lot of fans that wanted to ask if you guys have any international touring plans and specifically they were asking about Iceland or Japan. Um, nothing like that in the works. You know, we've, we've played Japan, I think six times, but it has been a few years. Um, they're, they're the guy who was like helping bring us over um, for those times, like connecting us with promoters, he's since moved out of Japan. So that might be a little more challenging, but, um, you know, would, would love to go back there. Um, Iceland, I don't think anyone from Iceland knows about Lotus, but I know like Alfred has a plans for a, like a destination event in, in Iceland with the Northern lights. And, and that's a cool idea, but, um, yeah, we, we sometimes do these type of destination events like, uh, jam crews or like holidays or uh, our, uh, one of our next shows coming up is actually in a cave in Tennessee. So, um, you know, we try to do interesting things like that here and there in a cave. So I, I think I had a few questions about that actually. Uh, okay. Maybe I'll, I'll get to it. We'll, we'll come across it. Yeah. Lots of, lots of fan questions. Um, so just before we get into fan questions, I guess you, you mentioned you like to read. I just, I always like, if I hear people like to read, I like to know what they're currently reading. Do you have any good books on the go? Um, I just finished a book. So, uh, but the last couple of things I read, um, I actually read that uh, Michael Pollan book about the history of psychedelics. Called, I think it's called How to Change a Mind or How to Change Your Mind. Yeah. Um, that was pretty interesting. And then this um, Spanish sort of experimental novel series called the uh, Nocia trilogy that I thought was really good. Um, but I'm, I'm a big fan of like uh, a lot of the mid century white male authors for better or for worse. <laughs> like uh, I, I love me some like Don DeLillo and Graham Greene yeah. and, and um, uh, Cormac McCarthy and, and, and things of that nature. Awesome. All right. Well, maybe we can, uh, try to breeze through these fan questions and then I can let you go. Okay. I'll just do them in order as they came in so that there's no rhyme or reason why, why we ask it in this order. So Spencer Mendoza asked if Lotus crash landed on a mountain in a survival situation, who would get eaten first? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. I mean, Mike uh, Rempel's the smallest. So, uh, <laughs> He might go quickest in the cold. I don't know. <laughs> We're all pretty skinny, though, so maybe none of us really stand much of a chance. <laughs> Dan Snack Williams asked, does Chuck put mayonnaise on his hot dog? 
<laughs> I have no idea what that's a reference to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know either. He said he he might have heard it somewhere. <laughs> it's I a terrible rumor. I don't remember. I, I don't think I've ever seen Chuck eat a hot dog, so I really can't oh. comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> Pat Drzinski and Alicia JL asked, why don't you play Ball of Energy anymore, and will you ever play it again? <laughs> um, yeah, probably. I don't, I don't know. It's like one of those things we just have. There's a lot of Lotus songs. That one in particular was originally used a melodica, and so if if we aren't set up to play a melodica or change the arrangement, it's a little um, little hard to play. So. I don't know. There's there's a lot of songs that uh, you know. Sometimes we go back and for special occasion rework them or or break them out. But that's kind of the the challenge of having a whatever 200 250 song catalog to choose from. Not everything can get played. Evan Meyer wants to know where did you buy those Peter Pan boots? <laughs> uh, I think I know what he's talking about. <laughs> I. Um, this uh, pair of vegan black Chelsea boots I wear a lot are from a vegan boutique designer in New York called Brave New Gentleman, and they nice. are very nice. I would love to see them. <laughs> probably look up <laughs> any picture of me, and I'm probably wearing them. Ooh, they're, the, they're the go-to stage boot? Yeah, and also I try not to have that many pairs of of uh, footwear that I own. So that's <laughs> in the rotation. <laughs> nice. How many vegan leather jackets do you own? Uh, one, I auctioned off the other one to, uh, when Brendan's house burned down. So we auctioned that one off for $500 and then I, uh, I bought a new one. Nice. Uh, Chris Paul McKenty wants to know if you love the Minka guys fly ass red leather jacket. Oh, yeah. Ari. I mean, I would never pull that off, but uh, Ari definitely has enviable jackets and an enviable beard. <laughs> that guy can grow like a five foot beard in like six months. That is what all men aspire to. <laughs> <laughs> he also wants to know boxers or briefs. Um, you know, that's a little that's a little personal. <laughs> Okay, moving on. <laughs> the answer was nothing, I assume. <laughs> um, okay, uh, you guys have played Red Rocks and a lot of big festivals and venues. What are some of the cooler small festivals and venues you've played that stand out? Um, well, for festivals like Summer Dance is our own or kind of our own festival. We we play six sets and for smaller festivals that's definitely a lot of fun um you know for for smaller shows um i guess i i don't know what is considered small but um like belly up in aspen is only a 400 four 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 fifty cap room or something and that's always a, a really fun time i mean aspen is is gorgeous and for this room being small they still have um, kind of all the amenities and production that you'd look for in a bigger room. I've seen videos from that venue. Do they always have the projection screen for every artist? 
Um, well, it's a LED screen that's built into the wall. So if, if the artists want to use it, it's, it's available. Oh, nice. Do you guys use it? Um, I think we, yeah, we usually use it a little bit. Um, not uh, like the whole time, but I, I think, uh, Scott or LD will use it occasionally when we play there. Just as a play with it for a little bit. Yeah. Fun. I mean, we, we don't do video that often, but, um, occasionally we do. So we have like some content that that's uh, specific for certain things that we've developed. Um, we might start doing more actually our latest red rock show. We ran a, a low res uh, video system and I developed my own program that uses triggers on the drums and, um, information from like what I'm playing with my computer and keyboard to generate some of the video in real time, which is pretty cool. Oh, that sounds awesome. Is there, so when's, when's that going to be broken out? Uh, well, we use it when we played at Red Rocks in, in April. And so it, it kind of depends if we bring out um, video, a video wall for other, other shows. But if we do bring that out, we would run that system again. Gotcha. So you mentioned summer dance. Um, Brendan Burns wants to know: Will there be a fan written set list for summer dance? Um, I don't know. We haven't we haven't planned what we're doing for summer dance yet. But yeah, we did that last year, and that was it was definitely pretty interesting to see what people came up with. It 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 reaffirmed to me that uh, that if you really want a creative set list, you have to have us write it or Luke write it. <laughs> Uh, but yeah. they, but a few people did come up with some pretty creative things. So we, we took a, took a challenge of, of playing one of the ones that was a bit more involved. But if, if you're talking about um, writing segues and, and things like that, it's, it definitely helps to have some knowledge of music theory to know what makes sense in terms of keys and tempos and, and moving right. around and structuring a, structuring a set. So um, you know, sometimes the best structured set list is, or I would say most of the time, the best structured <laughs> set list is going to come from us and not from the fan, but it is cool to have, get their perspective and see what people want us to maybe break out that, um, you know, we haven't played in a long time or I don't know. Um, I think it's definitely fun for fans to try to come up with something. Yeah. Maybe do like a vote on certain songs. And then once you have the list compiled, you guys can sort of arrange it in the best way possible yeah that'd be another idea well we we always try to come up with something um creative for summer dance since those are a lot of hardcore fans and it could be tough to shock them at a normal show so uh we have to kind of pull out all the stops at, at summer dance to throw them curveballs yeah and what are to the chances mix a lot of metaphors all together at once right <laughs> <laughs> so just as an aside to that question, what are the chances of summer dance being canceled? Um, I would say very slim. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that's in reference to. But <laughs> D. Michaels wants to know what's going on with Rempel's wrist. Some fans have been noticing some flexing and discomfort on stage. I oh, think uh, concerned. Uh, I don't think he has any problems with his wrist. I, I don't know. I just, if when you, when you play a two and a half hour, three hour show, whatever, multiple nights in a row. Sometimes it, uh, you know, wears down to you. So probably just trying to prevent injury rather than I think actually being injured. Right. Niraj Van Mali and Mikel Hood want to know 
why is Hammer Strike your favorite song? <laughs> this is this joke that Neeraj always tells me that Hammer Strike's my favorite song. Neeraj is a friend of mine, and this is this like long-running joke, which I don't know where he got it in his mind, but now he just tells me this every time I see him. <laughs> so he even snuck it in on this. <laughs> He's everywhere. He haunts my dreams. <laughs> That's awesome. Justin Mays wants to know, who is your favorite DJ? Uh, my favorite DJ, um, you know, I haven't, like, I, I would say I'm more into um, producers than DJs, but as far as, like, straight DJing, um, a few years ago, I saw a really good set from uh, Juan McLean, who also sometimes performs as a band called The Juan McLean. But, um, yeah, he did a, he, I saw him do a really good DJ set at the Dolphin here in Philly. But you know, I haven't I haven't seen any just straight up kind of like um, house or techno DJs in a while. So maybe I need to get out to a few more of those events. Mm. Who's your favorite producer? Um, uh, probably Fortet. Oh yeah, I've I've heard a lot of even from your interviews. I've heard you mention him a lot. Yeah, he's he does a really good job of kind of mixing something that would be similar to techno but with something that's more kind of like a kraut rock sort of thing um i don't know it's like it's electronic music but it has like a naturalistic feel so um yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a uh, always good stuff what brian 
Bischoff wants to know what's the hardest song to play. Uh, hardest song to play. Uh, honestly, for me, um, Umbilical Moonrise is, I, I have really high action on my bass and it's, it's really taxing to hold down uh, the left hand while I play that, this tapping part. Is there a reason why you go with the high action of your bass, or is that just what you started out with and got used to? Um, I'd say a little bit of that, but also I just, like, whenever I play around on someone's bass that has really low action, I feel like I don't have to work hard enough for the notes. It's just mm. like too easy to uh, kind of like play fast. So um, yeah, I, I feel like high action lends itself to more rhythmic playing and to um, yeah, just being like really um, like if you're going to play a note, you really have to you have to go for it. You can't just, you know, be tapping it with your left hand. Right. Do you find it keeps you in the pocket a little, little easier? Yeah, maybe. But I don't know. I, I guess I've just played that bass pretty much exclusively for a long time. So I don't really know uh, like an exact comparison. But yeah, um, yeah it's it's like. I want it to be, you know, physically, physically involved. So I guess that part probably helps add to the groove or makes you get in the pocket. Yeah. What would you say your favorite keyboard is and why? Um, it kind of changes based on whatever I bought the latest, but, um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm definitely big into the modular stuff so that that can change all the time but you know classic the i let's say the cat the 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 octave cat for mono mm. synth that thing just always sounds good and um you know if you, if you need a like 70s sounding um mono synth that thing has never really done me wrong yeah and inspired of a band name yes <laughs> <laughs> I too. Although we don't we don't bring that out to play live with Octocat, but uh, maybe we should. Um, Sean Chappelle wants to know if you could swap lives with a famous jazz man, who would it be? Oh, I don't know. I mean, a lot of the greats were also heroin addicts uh, and <laughs> lived pretty tough lives. So, um, so all of them. <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe like McCoy Tyner, like more of a more of like a sideman, but also like um, you know a badass. Yeah, absolutely. And just being <laughs> able to shred the keys, which I don't know how to do, but would love to know how to do. So yeah, I'm going with McCoy Tyner. Some old Coltrane stuff. Oh yeah. <laughs> 
what's in store for the caverns? How many times are you guys going to play nonstop? How many times are we going to play nonstop? <laughs> I, I don't yeah. understand that part, but um, no idea. Um, we're, we're just starting to put together some ideas for that. So uh, I don't want to ruin, ruin any surprises, but I, you know, we definitely want to make that a special show. We've never played there before. So I don't know what the challenges are in terms of like the production of the sound. Um, but, you know, assuming all that stuff is under control, I think we just want to like use the, use the space to our advantage to really make a show that, envelopes people but you know I, I think that's what we try to do with every show but maybe we can just kind of harness that in a different way while we're playing in a cave yeah so you guys are planning things right now how far out do you write a set list for a show like that um it depends what it is like this like disc jam since we needed to get songs to john early you know that was planned out or at least the songs that we we're going to play was planned out about uh four months in advance you know, and similar type of okay. thing for summer dance. If we're if we're doing something special, we're we're planning things out pretty far in advance. But you know, if we're just on tour, um, you know, usually it's more just like the day before we're kind of looking at a potential song list, and then even just completing the actual set list like right before the show. Yeah, just like rehearse some of the songs that need to be rehearsed beforehand, and just throw it together. Yeah. Or, you know, Luke will kind of have a list of things for sound check that he'll go over and then kind of base how things are feeling there. And, and, um, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into it. Like what we played last time we were in that same market or in that same room or what we played the night before, um, or, you know, what we've, what we've played a lot on a tour or what we haven't played, all those things are kind of factored in. So then after the sound check, he, he kind of finishes putting together the the actual set list. And then usually we stick pretty close to that. You know, maybe like a song has to be taken out if we're running low on time or something, or every once in a while we'll call an audible and switch something. But for the most part, we, we stick to what's written. Right. Um, Brad Friedman wants to know, did you know that other than a few festival appearances, it's been six years since you last made a proper tour stop in Florida? Uh, I didn't know that. <laughs> so, um, I, and I don't know if that's going to be remedied anytime soon. So, uh, sorry, Brad, you're just going to have to fly out to see us where we are. <laughs> <laughs> Suck it, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> and Brian wants to know, you guys are always trying new genres and styles. Do you guys have an idea of which direction you're going to take your material after the positive reception of frames per second? Are you going to stick to similar vibes or are you going to try to maybe reinvent yourselves like in the past? Um, well, we have a, a you know, like I said, a big batch of demos and yeah, it, I guess in some ways it's those, it, it's kind of similar to frames per second. I mean, even frames per second, I would say it wasn't, um, uh, stylistically one thing it was kind of all over the place um, I think right. the the thread that kept that together was just kind of how we recorded it like tracking it more live um, with everybody all at once instead of doing the like build something up part by part in the studio sort of thing um, so I yeah I think we'll probably try to do something 
in a similar way next time, just because I really like the efficiency of it. The, mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, if, if me and Luke put in the work beforehand, really getting the demos really crafted well, um, then we can kind of eliminate that idea of, you know, trying things out in the studio and building things up one at a time and kind of take advantage of the skills we have of 20 years of playing in a band and, and uh, do it all at once. Is there any genres that you guys haven't really touched on that maybe interest you or that you want to want to try to put a Lotus touch on? Um, you know, I think it would be interesting to do something in a more like classical minimalist vein like with lotus maybe filled out with uh either more like strings or or like a percussion ensemble or something like that that's yeah more toward a a, a classical thing i don't know if it would really translate well to a live show but um i think it would be um just like a an interesting project but yeah, I think one of the reasons we we haven't taken time to work on something like that is the like challenge of 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 bringing that into um, what we do in our our live show. But maybe as like a special project sometime. Yeah, that'd be cool to record the album with with like a like an orchestra type deal, and then maybe for like a special show if you're playing with like a band with strings and maybe bring them out with you to do a do a performance would be absolutely incredible yeah that's uh yeah i always like like doing that stuff when we can i mean i, I think to some degree we, we work that stuff in sometimes with i mean that's the whole idea with um most of the time what we're doing with the sampling it's it's like something that was done on a modular synth but uh, bringing that out to every show would be pretty challenging so or you know bringing out a string quartet all the time would be challenging but we can record them in the studio and then i can play it back on my foot pedal when for like behind midwest storefronts or something like that um mm. so it is something i do like to do but um like for the last album we kept it like no no guests like really focused down on on just lotus playing but i i think i might try to bring in few different instruments on a couple things for the the next project i definitely hear some some like string and horn things on on a few compositions yeah that would be that would be awesome yeah it's always it's always really fun to arrange for instruments like that because you can just i mean like you listen to that curtis mayfield stuff or things of that range where it's like these great Quincy Jones arrangements for horns and strings and kind of just realize the cinematic power of adding that to something that's already has a good groove. So where do you see Lotus in five, 10 or 15 years? What does um, the future look like? I mean, I like what we're doing right now is, um, yeah, I can see maintaining this for quite a while. Like we don't tour nearly as much as um, some other bands. So we kind of try to keep our sanity that way and uh, not try to wear ourselves out too much and kind of get a good split between studio stuff and live stuff. So as long as it, um, you know, people still feel inspired to play, I, I think we um, kind of continue kind of on a similar route that we're doing now but 
I think it is, you got to always push yourself to find new things to make sure you don't get into these doldrums. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah. We've been doing it for 20 years and I feel like there's so many things I still want to explore. I feel like there's, it's not anywhere near slowing down. Yeah. Other than what we've talked about, is there anything else? Like you said, so many things you want to explore. What, uh, what comes to mind right offhand? Well, just like some of the stuff that I do with, Octave Cat and Beardo Bees, those like the more like jazz side of things, and then more of the like modular synth and um, analog things are are things that I definitely want to keep delving into when I can. And you know, I I bring that stuff into Lotus um, a little bit where it's where it's appropriate. But you know, those those kind of areas um, you know, definitely open up things to to me because there are things that are like outside of um, what I originally did for Lotus or what we would like, you know, our, our first kind of go-to is. Um, so I think there's a lot to be explored there. Yeah. Anything in 2020 planned? Anything, anything coming um, right up? Yeah. We're just, just starting to um, get a few, get some like touring sort of sketched out for, 2020 so um yeah n- nothing that i can um, publicly say right now but uh we are we are working on stuff we are still about uh six months away so all right man so the new album frames per second that's out now uh anything else that you want to want to plug yeah well if people haven't um seen it uh, um frames per second obviously a the titles are reference to film and it's it, the album exists as a, as a film of us, you know, recording and playing it in the studio as well. So definitely check that out if you, if you haven't, uh, but yeah, just some festivals and a few uh, shows through the summer, a lot of, a lot of kind of special shows like the cave and uh, weekend out at uh, Mishawaka amphitheater in Colorado um, some some great festivals coming up. So, yeah, um, you know, while we're not all over the country, definitely some some cool opportunities to catch Lotus in the next few months. Yeah, some real cool shows coming up. Right on, man. Well, thank you very much for doing this. Yeah, no problem. Have a good one. You too.